Daniel 2, please. So here we are. Four weeks into our series on prophecy and we're finally going to look at some prophecy. I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I hope you don't roll your eyes too much when I say that. It's true we have taken the scenic route, as it were, to get to where we find ourselves today within the scope of prophecy. But it, it is my hope that if you do not now, maybe someday you will be in the place where you can appreciate why it is we have done what we've done and we've come the way we've come as we speak on biblical eschatology. To put it plainly, it is insufficient for you simply to believe what you believe because it's what you have been taught. Now I say that with a caveat, a little asterisk. Please see the bottom of the page in the small print. It is right and good for you to learn and oftentimes for you to obey sometimes before you even understand why. My children, sometimes they need to learn and to obey before they understand the reasoning. But as they grow and mature, if they are doing things simply because that's what they do without understanding why they do it, they are going to be left foundationless. It would perhaps be flattering for me if you were to simply trust that I have done my homework and that I am accurate and right on everything, but I believe it does you a disservice if you simply rest on Pastor Wickler. Many of you have, or certainly many of you will, come across people that do not believe like you believe. And yet, they can open up the Bible and they can show you a verse or verses that seem to substantiate their claims. And their claims, which they use Bible verses to substantiate, happen to be different from your claims, which you use Bible verses to substantiate. And if you are simply operating on my assurances that the verses I'm using are properly given to you, then the door will be left open for you to be confused or at least to lack an opportunity that you would have otherwise had to explain your understanding and reasoning to someone else. The issues that we are talking about and that we have talked about for the past three weeks are deeper than simply your knowledge of what is to come. You don't just need to believe something about the end times. You need to extend your interpretation of Scripture into your belief about end times. Your understanding of end times events should be nothing more or nothing less than a simple extension of how you read and understand your Bible. A clear, consistent line of biblical interpretation will equip you to understand every aspect of God's Word within context and in a manner that will aid you, not just in knowing what has been or what will be, but also what needs to be right now. 
It will help you explain to people not just why we believe what we believe on the end times or not just why we believe what we believe about what happened in the book of Genesis or what happened in the time of the judges or what happened in the days of David or what happened as Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross. It will help you as well with confidence when you talk to someone about the current conflict that is going on in Israel. It will help you when you talk to someone about the contention around the homosexuality sodomite agenda. It will help you when you seek to explain why you believe what you believe in the context of abortion. Our determinations concerning purity of mind, purity of body, what we wear, where we go, why we do what we do. It's all rooted in our understanding of God's Word, which is rooted in our method of interpretation of God's Word, which is rooted in our philosophy, how we look at God's Word. And so we began three weeks ago with with the determination that we would look at God's Word and say God's Word is true, God desired to communicate truth, and I need the Spirit of God to understand that truth, but I also need to study. And then we built on top of that that we need to to study and understand a literal, grammatical, contextual, historical understanding of the Word of God. And then we built on top of that our understanding of prophetic interpretation and, and the, the differences and dynamics of the time relationship and prophecy and the dynamics of perspective and the dynamics of language. And then we built on top of that the idea of the ages and that God is indeed working through different people at different times, through different promises. And now we come to the point where we take everything that we learn about what we believe about the Bible and how we get about believing the Bible and we're putting it all together. And tonight we're going to take a look at some passages of Scripture whereby we will glean God's overarching plan. So we'll see some past and we will see it transition into some future. And interestingly enough, it will completely bypass the present. You'll understand what I mean when we get there. So we turn our eyes toward this big picture, and where we're going to begin, you're there already, is in Daniel chapter 2. We have preached through Daniel before. It was a long time ago now, perhaps before some of your time in this church. And I would encourage you, if you have not done so, uh, to go back and to listen to some of those messages. I didn't get them all because I started the series before I started recording the sermons. However, I believe it starts in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1 online, and it continues from there, speaking um, and going through each of the messages, and I believe they're all there. Today we're just going to browse a few passages in Daniel, some of the prophetic passages in Daniel, to give us an understanding of what the big picture is in God's overarching prophetic plan. In Daniel chapter 2, perhaps you know the story, some of these stories in Daniel are very familiar, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and this dream troubles him greatly. This is a big part of the the story of Daniel, so you're probably somewhat familiar with it. He's so troubled by the dream that it was insufficient for him to say, well, I'm just going to bring my interpreters in. I'm going to tell them the dream and they're going to tell me what it means. He, He knew, he was a smart man, he knew that his magicians and his wise men and his interpreters, 
if they didn't know the interpretation of the dream, they would make something up. They're going to keep the king happy, right? That is job security. You want to keep your job, you keep the king happy. The king wasn't interested in being pandered or flattered. He was so troubled by this dream, he wanted truth. So he says, okay, wise men, okay, magicians, here's the way this is going to work. You are responsible to tell me what the dream was that I had. And then you're responsible to give me the interpretation. And what this will mean is you have to know you must have some sort of divine help or supernatural help because it's not just going to be I'm going to tell you the dream and then I'm going to take your word for it that you're right. You have to get inside my head to know what that dream was first. Of course, the magicians look at their, their oh-so-powerful, um, angry king and they say, King, with all due respect, what you're asking is impossible. Only God knows your dream. He says, okay, you're all dead. You're all dead men. So all of the wise men are going to die. Well, Daniel and his three companions, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, they had been brought to Babylon not too long uh, in the past, uh, in the captivity of Babylon, as, as Israel was, Judah specifically was taken into captivity. And Daniel says, well, what's going on here? And, and, and um, the gentleman he was talking to said, well, you're all going to die. King says all the wise men get to die. Can't interpret the dream. Can't tell us what the dream is. All the wise men die. Well, Daniel says, well, aren't dreams from the Lord? Give me, give me a few days and we'll see if the Lord will reveal to me the dream. Well, the Lord does. The Lord reveals to him the dream. And it is this dream that Daniel speaks of as we step into Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. So please look with me as I read Daniel 2, 31 to 45 as we see what this dream was. Daniel says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. Up a little bit, excuse me. And the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven have hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another 
third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, and there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay." And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever, for as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. So Daniel describes in these verses a large statue, an image of a man that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. His head, this Image's head was gold, breast and arms were silver, belly and thigh were brass, legs were of iron, feet were of iron mixed with clay. Then Daniel describes a stone, a stone cut without hands that comes and destroys this image, hits it right on the feet, destroying the entire image, smashing not just the feet, but the entire image to dust, and the dust just blows away, and then this stone cut without hands becomes a great mountain and that is the kingdom of God. And Daniel then interprets the dream at least in part. He says that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Then another kingdom will come like silver, precious and beautiful still but not as powerful. Then a kingdom like brash, again, uh, beautiful, precious, but uh, strong, swift, but still less valuable, less powerful. Then a fourth kingdom, strong like iron, a very powerful but less majestic. And then at some point, this this kingdom is divided into ten kingdoms. Some are weak, some are strong. And it is during this last fourth kingdom of iron, when that kingdom has been divided into ten kings, that Daniel says the kingdom of God kingdom of the God of heaven will come and destroy all other kingdoms, smash them all to dust, and that God's kingdom will stand forever. Turn with me now to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, we see a vision of Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. In this vision, Daniel sees four beasts. Let's read it together. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from earth and made to stand upon uh, the feet as a man. 
and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth of it between the teeth of it. And and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth that devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fire, the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were open. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which, were, which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And then it continues, and we, we continue through 18. Daniel says he was grieved in his spirit after seeing this vision. So Daniel sees four beasts. The first was a lion with eagle's wings. Big, majestic, powerful. The second, bear. One side of the bear higher than the other. Three ribs in his mouth. The third, a leopard with four heads, four wings. Fast, swift, powerful. The final, a beast that he couldn't even describe. It was like nothing he'd ever seen. It was ferocious. It was terrible. had iron teeth. It was terrifying. Daniel then sees all of these, these animals, which were kingdoms, cast down before God in the Ancient of Days who will establish the kingdom with the saints of the Most High. God goes on to describe this little horn as a wicked man who rules over the fourth kingdom. He will seek to destroy the saints of God, but will be destroyed in the end by the power of God. Now, this should sound familiar because it closely resembles the vision that we just looked at in Daniel 2. Four kingdoms, each one in succession a little bit less than the other, the last one being great and terrible and strong, culminating with the kingdom of God destroying them. And this leads us to Daniel 8. Please turn with me to Daniel 8. Look with me please in verses 1 through 8. In the year of the reign of of King Belshazzar, in the third year, excuse me, of the reign of King Belshazzar, so this would be two years later, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw a vision, and I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. 
And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came out from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with a, with collar against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Look with me now in verse 19. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation for the time appointed at the time appointed, the end shall be. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. The rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And he goes on to talk about the, the, that king being broken and four kingdoms coming up out of it. And um, we'll, we we'll, we can go on in prophecy from there. But what we see as we put all of these things together, this prophecy unlocks the other ones. Because what we saw in the other prophecies were a succession of kingdoms going from Babylon to number 2 to number 3 to number 4 to the kingdom of God. And then we saw another succession going from an eagle and continuing to a bear and then to the leopard with four heads and then to this crazy beast. And now we see a goat and a ram, but these are given context. Following the kingdom of Babylon, there would rise up a Medo-Persian empire. And following the Medo-Persian empire, there would rise up a Grecian empire. And so when we put all of this together, this is what we find. We find that the image is intended to represent different kingdoms that were represented by other portions of uh, these prophecies as well. So in Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold is Babylon. As well as in Daniel chapter 7, the lion with eagle's wings. Those both represent Babylon. And then we, as we go to the chest and to the arms of silver, this is the Medo-Persian Empire, represented by the bear and also represented by the ram that has... Notice... The, the image was of silver. The bear had one side higher than the other, you remember? And the ram had one horn higher than the other? That's because in the Medo-Persian Empire, they were not equals. The one empire, Persia, exercised complete control over that, that alliance. And so Persia was greater than, than the media, and yet they were one empire. So the bear had one side higher than the other. The ram had one horn higher than the other. And then we go to the next portion. And we see that torso and the, the thighs of brass, which is the Grecian empire, which is also the leopard with the four heads and the four wings, which is also the ram, uh, or the he-goat that arises with the notable horn. That is their first king. The first king of the Grecian Empire was Alexander the Great, one of the greatest king generals that we, ha that we know of in history. 
And so this is a little bit hard to see here, but we've got the gold, the silver, the brass, and then we have the iron, and that's Rome. Also indicative of this great strange beast. And then the iron and clay, which is an extension of the Roman Empire. It's not a new empire in itself. It's still the fourth kingdom, the, a divided kingdom, ten kings that will make up this kingdom, and then an eleventh king that rises and plucks up three of those kings, which give way to the stone cut without hands, which is the judgment of the kingdom of God and the entrance of the millennial temple. And so we see that all of these prophecies are, are pointing to the same thing, which is four notable kingdoms that are taking place before the final kingdom. And those four notable kingdoms are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Following Rome, the kingdom of God is supposed to come. Now turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And look with me at verse 24. Angel Gabriel is speaking to Daniel here, and he is now telling Daniel what is to come for his people. And he says this, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make recon, uh, reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So Daniel 9 opens at the very end of the 70 years of captivity. And Daniel is on his knees begging God to restore his people once again. And God answers Daniel's prayer by sending Gabriel to tell him what's going to happen to God's people in the future. The, he says, I'm going to give you the rest of Israel's program. And he says that that program is made up of 70 weeks. That 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Now this is why all of our foundation in our biblical interpretation is important. Because if we have taken all of these prophecies that we've read, literally, grammatically, historically, contextually, and we put them all together, because we know who the he-goat was, because we know who the ram was, and because we've seen these things in history, we can backtrack to Babylon, we know that the, the head of gold was Babylon, and we can go forward and we can know as, for surety that the gold statue, that the, that the animals, and all of these prophecies are one prophecy of four kingdoms eventually giving way to 
Christ's kingdom. In the same way, keep your thinking caps on, when God says 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, Daniel, who must we understand Daniel's people to be? Israel. It must be Israel. It can't be the church. The church won't be around for hundreds and hundreds of years. It must be Israel. And God says, I'm going to give you 70 weeks that are determined upon thy people, Daniel. Now, we need to quickly speak about what a prophetic week is. He says 70 weeks. Well, 70 weeks is not very long. That prophecy should have ended a long time ago, right? 70 weeks, uh, thousands of years ago. Uh, 52 weeks in a year. Just a little better than a year. But that's not what God is saying here. When we look at prophetic weeks, a prophetic week, seven prophetic days, uh, as the Lord presents it, is actually a time span of seven years. And so 70 weeks would be 490, or 70 times 7, 490 years of time passing. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Good, I'm glad you're not just accepting it from me. Ask the questions. How does Pastor know that 70 weeks needs to be interpreted as 490 years? Seven, 70 sets of 7, or 70 times 7, or 490. Well, we know that we're dealing with a group of 7-something, right? Or 70-something. 70 weeks. And that week has to be seven of something. We're talking about a week. A week is seven days. It's always been seven days. It always will be seven days. So we're talking about seven somethings. In Daniel 7.25, we looked at it a little while ago, the angel tells us that this eleventh horn, the horn that would rise up out of those ten horns, that this eleventh horn of the fourth kingdom, he will wear out the saints, the Bible says. And the Bible says that he, will, that he will be given the saints for a time, a times, and half a time. Or a time, two times, and a half a time. That's three and a half times. So, in Daniel chapter 9, we have seven of something done 70 times over for 490 of something. 70 weeks. In Daniel 7, we saw 3.5 of something. A time, a times, and a half a time. We go back to Daniel 9.27, and we see that the abomination of desolation is said to be in full operation in Daniel 9.27 for one half of the final week. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate. And so there is this prince of the people that shall come, and this prince of the people that shall come shall make a covenant with Israel for one week, seven of something. And in the midst of that seven of something, 3.5 of that something, you with me? 3.5 of that something, he is going to break off his covenant, he is going to desecrate the temple, and he is going to attack the people. Well, now we praise God for completed revelation. Because if we go to Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, and, you, and I don't ask you to turn there, but if you want to write down the references, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, the Bible describes this abomination of desolation as having power for 
42 months. For 42 months. In Daniel 12, verse 7, God says Israel will flee from this wicked man for a time, a times, and a half a time. 3.5 of something. So Israel's fleeing from this man for 3.5 of something. This wicked horn, this 11th horn, it has dominion over the saints for 3.5 of something. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that the abomination of desolation will chase the saints of God and destroy the saints of God for 42 months. Revelation chapter 12 verse 6 tells us that Israel will flee from this wicked man, the abomination of desolation, for 1,260 days. So we see many instances of the same event in Scripture. Some wicked man who's given power over the saints of God, who is, who, who is the abomination that makes desolate, who will desecrate the temple, who will attack the people of God. And in various places, we see it described as being uh, an attack that would last for one half week, for 3.5 of something, for 42 months, and for 1,260 days. Now it's time to do the math. A lunar month is 30 days. Our Gregorian calendar doesn't go off of the lunar calendar. It goes off of more or less um, a, a solar calendar. A lunar calendar is far more consistent. 30 days in a lunar calendar. That's the calendar that they would have been on at the time and the calendar through which prophecy is given. And so if we take that 1,260 days and we divide it by that lunar calendar month of 30 days in a month, that gives us 42 months. If we take 42 months and we divide it by 12 months in a year, that gives us 3.5 years. This is why we recognize that Daniel's 70 weeks are actually 490 years. Each week is 7 years. There's 70 of those. 70 times 7 is 490. So we determine, because we know from the book of Revelation, from the book of Daniel, from Jeremiah, from Ezekiel, what's going on in prophecy, we see that 1,260 days of Israel fleeing, or, thir- uh, or 42 months of Israel fleeing, or 3.5 a time, times and a half a time of Israel fleeing, or half a week of Israel fleeing, and it all adds up to the same thing, that one week equals seven years. 70 weeks is 490 years. That's how we get that. That's why we, that's why we know that. Because, see, there's going to be a lot of people that don't believe that. They don't believe that the 70 weeks is 490 years. But there's a reason why we do. And the reason why we do is because as we look at the whole of Scripture, it's biblically consistent. We see events that are so similar that they must be the same thing. And we take all of those events and when we put them together, we see that they're talking about it in different ways, but it's the same event. And so, a time of times and a half a time is 3.5 of something, but in Daniel 9.27, it's a half a week, but in Revelation, it's 42 months, it's, it's 1,260 days, and they're all the same thing. Three and a half years. So God says 70 weeks are determined upon Daniel's people Israel. 490 years. And this time will begin with the declaration, as we see, the command to restore Jerusalem. Now, we're not going to get into all the history tonight because that's not necessary for our context. If you want all of the history, listen to my sermon series in Daniel. Or, sign up for the class on the intertestamental period. 
that I'll be starting in September on Monday nights, and um, you can learn about it then. <coughs> Excuse me. So God then, in this passage, breaks these 70 weeks into three subdivisions. Seven weeks, or 49 years. 62 weeks, or 434 years. And then one week. Seven more years. And God says, that He gives the seven weeks. After the seven weeks, uh, we believe the history is kind of muddy on what, what happened after those 49 years. But it would seem as though that was the time after the command had gone forth to restore Jerusalem that 49 years later was when Jerusalem was actually finally completely rebuilt. Then another 62 weeks occur. Another 434 years occur. And that brings us to a date approximately 30 A.D. Ish. Many people believe that the date, the cutoff point was the baptism of Jesus Christ. Some say the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Either way, it brings us to the time of Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures tell us that after the 69 weeks, according to Daniel chapter 9, after these 69 weeks, Messiah would be cut off and the temple would be destroyed. Well, Jesus Christ is Messiah. He was cut off two years after the end of the 69 weeks, which is fine because it doesn't say at 69 weeks. It says after 69 weeks. And then another 40 years later in AD 70, the people of the prince that shall come destroy the city. What people destroyed the city? Rome. The fourth kingdom, right? The kingdom of iron. The great beast that nobody could... Could, that Daniel couldn't identify. They'd never seen anything like it. The one out of whom the horn came, the little horn, out of whom the ten kingdoms grew, the kingdom of Rome. Rome destroyed that temple. Messiah was cut off. Everything happened exactly as God showed it to Daniel. But then we come to an interesting marker. Following the 69th week, Jesus dies on the cross and in A.D. 70, the temple is destroyed. In the 70th week, as described in Daniel 9, this final seven years, a time when a man known as the Prince that shall come makes a covenant with Israel and at the halfway point of this covenant, he desecrates the temple and receives the title abomination of desolation. This abomination of desolation is identified as the same man as the prince that shall come in Daniel 12. He's identified in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 as the little horn. And in the New Testament, he is identified as Antichrist. Now, when Jesus walked upon the earth, he said the abomination of desolation was still future. That makes sense because Jesus was living around and about that end of that 69th week. All, for, all of these descriptions, however, point to a man of great earthly power who will rise out of the Roman Empire, throw down all other powers, make a covenant with Israel of peace, abandon that covenant halfway through that covenant, three and a half years in, and then desecrate the temple. 
from Daniel to Ezekiel through Matthew, 2 Thessalonians, and into Revelation, we see the same man appearing at the same time, the latter half of the seven years of a time that, da- that Jeremiah calls the time of J- Jacob's trouble, a time that we know as a time of great tribulation. Now, as we consider all of this, it's very important that we do so in context. God is speaking to Daniel of the final days of whom? His people. Who are Daniel's people? Well, it must be national Israel. These 70 weeks are determined upon national Israel. We are dealing with God's plan for Israel. The first 69 weeks, the first 483 years of this prophecy occurred before the church existed. The the first 483 years of this prophecy occurred directly involving national Israel. If we are going to be consistent in our biblical interpretation, we cannot come to any other conclusion than to recognize that the final week of this prophecy, the 70th week, the seven years which Revelation describes as a time of tribulation, are a part of God's dealing with His people, Israel. With Daniel's people. Because the first 483 years were dealing with Daniel's people, so these last seven years ought to be dealing with Daniel's people as well. Now allow me to conclude this message by summing up what I'm trying to emphasize for you. These 70 weeks in Daniel are presented as the final 490 years of God's program with Israel. We can historically verify 483 years of this as already having taken place. We can trace it through history. We can see the events. We can see the milestones. All the way to when Messiah is cut off and the temple is destroyed. That's all history. It's verified. It happened, folks. But there is nowhere in history where this final week bears out. There is no place in history where these last seven years play out literally in the same way the first 483 years played out literally. God gave one prophecy here of 70 weeks, 490 years. The first 483 were literal. It would make no sense for God to make the last seven years spiritual or allegorical. It would make no sense at all, folks. This is a literal seven years, and we have not yet seen historically any possible historical event that fits these seven years. If we turn our minds back toward Ezekiel, when I preach through Ezekiel, prophecies substantiated by several other prophets as well, including, as we looked at last week, back to Deuteronomy, we remember that God has promised to restore Israel, to gather them together, to take the stick that was Israel and the stick that was Judah and to put those two sticks back together and to make them one stick. You can't be talking about something spiritual there, folks. We're not talking about a spiritual Israel. Judah and Israel, those were two nations. God was speaking about nations and putting them together and making them one. We're talking about something physical. We're talking about something national. We're talking about God's program for Israel. All of these prophets speak of 
the kingdom. Speak of a terrible enemy to God's people. Speak of them being saved by their Messiah. Speak of them looking upon Him whom they have pierced and believing on Him. Speak about a physical kingdom that Messiah sets up to rule and reign over His people in peace and prosperity upon David's throne forever. It's all there, folks. Now, there is a speed bump in this journey, though, isn't there? Remember, in prophecy, the first 69 weeks having happened and the last week having not is okay, right? Because of the valley. The prophet stood on a hill and he saw 70 weeks. What he didn't see is that between the 69th and the 70th week, there was a valley. And that valley is what we call the church age. The church was instituted after the 69th week. The 70th week has nothing to do with the church. It has everything to do with national Israel. Does it not then make sense, as we lead into next week's teaching on the rapture, that God would remove His church before He picks up His dealings with Israel? And I'm not just asking you to follow logic here. Prophetically, God's plan, dealing with Israel, the 70th week, just like the last 69 weeks, dealing with national Israel. God is focusing on Israel, and now we're in this time that Daniel didn't see, between the 69th and the 70th week. Prophetically speaking, everything that that 70th week stands for is foreign to God's purpose for the church. That 70th week will be a time of chastening for Israel. You and I don't need chastening. We've accepted Christ. We stand before God, holy, unblameable, unreprovable in His sight. What does He need to chasten us for? He looks down at us and He sees the blood of His Son. Far be it from God to to need to judge us, to draw us back to Him. We are under the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Israel's not. They need to be, though, before God can fulfill God's promises to them. So, we don't need the 70th week. Not only do we not need the 70th week, but we don't appear in the prophecy of, 70, of the 70 weeks. We didn't appear in the first 69 weeks. There's nothing mentioning us in the final week. Why, why do we want to put ourselves in it? We're not there. The church isn't there. The church began after the 69th week. Every prophetic marker points to the fact that the church will be gone before the 70th week begins. And that is what we're going to come into next week. I gave you the overarching plan tonight. I hope this opened your eyes a little bit. Gave you some perspective. What are these 69 weeks talking about? 70th week. What's that talking about? Where does it fit into prophecy? And where do we fit in in it? We don't. We don't. And by God's grace, next week we're going to learn about the rapture of the church. The next event on the prophetic timetable. The next event to come. Why do we believe it? Well, one of the reasons is because when we interpret consistently... The church has no place in the tribulation. And as a matter of fact, if I were to stand upon the one most compelling piece of evidence that convinces me that we're not leaving halfway through through the tribulation, we're not leaving right before Armageddon, we're certainly not leaving after the tribulation, the most compelling piece of evidence that we will leave before it even begins are the 70 weeks of Daniel. Because there is no place for the church in that prophecy. And that 70th week is without a doubt the tribulation week. 